The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So this is week four of the Buddhist Studies class, Cultivating Wholesome Relationships. And tonight, we're going to continue this reflection on relationships as a kind of crucible that I mentioned last week. And it's really a metaphor for how somebody interested, attracted to this path of awakening, it really teaches us how to relate to life and the great complexity of our lives, of having a body, of having a conditioned heart, conditioned by culture and conditioned by millions of years of evolution. And just the complexity of being a social being. And we have, you know, part of our conditioning is to have social desires and social needs. It doesn't have to be a problem, although it often really seems like a problem. The social needs and social desires, sexual needs and desires the need to belong, the need to be seen, the need to be adored and heard and respected. These are just part of the territory of being a human being, being a mammal, and being conditioned, the heart, the mind being conditioned the way that it is. So we can think of this as a crucible and that being committed, like even in a 30 minutes sit like we had tonight, being committed to being in relationship with our experience, just like when we're done with the program tonight. And, you know, for those of you who live with other beings, even non-human beings, cats and dogs and birds, whatever, you know, then we have some version of a commitment to be in relationship with these other beings. And this committedness is a crucible. Right? It's either going to be a place where we get to practice suffering and having problems with the conditions of our lives, or it can be a place where we learn something, a thing or two about freedom and about coming alive, being more and more alive. And really, what is it, what is it this joy that wise saints have mentioned through the centuries, you know, they, we have this lineage of wise people before us, and uh, shockingly, they seem to be able to have uncovered real happiness and a kind of lightness and uh, willingness to be in the middle of things, non-dependence on ideal circumstances. I mean, that's really the definition of a saintly person is not that they have, you know, their happiness is dependent on living in a really sweet, cool place and just having cool friends and, you know, everything working out just fine, no mosquitoes, pleasant weather, and boy, they're happy. But, you know, we don't consider those people saintly. It's people who, in the midst of really difficult experience, like we think about what it must be like for some of the nurses and doctors and other medical staff in the coronavirus hotspots. 
in the hospitals and just the endless need and one thing after another and your own exposure to the virus and possible exposure to your loved ones. And for those people who can somehow manifest, like be in relationship with a lot of ease and kindness and non-fear, well, that's what I would consider to be saintly qualities, right? Those moments when people in those difficult circumstances can express really beautiful qualities like non-distraction and non-fear and non-greed. And when those less than wholesome tendencies are triggered and they show up in their minds and hearts and they're not afraid of them either. And they're, they know how to feel and see and recognize, oh yeah, I'm afraid. Fear is there and I'm not confused by the fear. Greed is there and I'm not confused by the greed. And so this is... Uh, the point I've been making these last number of weeks is how we really need life generally and we need relationships in particular, committed relationships, being committed to friendships, committed to families, committed to social justice issues and community issues so that we're learning what freedom might look like and feel like in the complexity of our social relations, as opposed to what I mentioned last week, this spiritual bypass. Because on some level, somewhat unconsciously, we sense this complexity and messiness and how easily my heart gets entangled with social relationships. So we can latch on to spiritual teachings as a way of avoiding this sort of difficulty of being in relationship with life and in relationship with others. And I appreciate someone sent in some questions on this. And it's really about where we put our faith. You know, do we put our faith in getting what we want or getting rid of what we don't want? Or do we put our faith in pretending that the complexity out there and the pain in here, the hardness of separation, the ache of separation in here, pretending that it ain't what it feels like. It isn't what it appears to be. And this is, I think, in the direction of um, what people have called spiritual bypass, especially John Wellwood talks about it. This is from Tanisara, a well-known teacher, uh, practiced as a Buddhist nun, uh, but now often teaches with Kitasaro, kind of a real dynamic Dharma duo, uh, Tanisara and Kitasaro. And this is from this article. I forget if I've sent out the link, but I will before the end of the course. It's called A Mindful Marriage, Kitasaro and Tanisara on Celibacy, Sex, and Lasting Love. And this was in the magazine The Sun um, about 10 years ago. And she's writing about uh, the equivalent of spiritual bypass. This is how she talks about it. The person interviewing had asked about the challenges of marriage, given that they're both Kitasaro and Tanisara are both uh, Buddhist practitioners and Dharma teachers. And she writes, or she said, 
The shadow side of Buddhist practice is what I call premature non-attachment. So that to me sounds like spiritual bypassing, right? Where I'm a little overwhelmed by the complexity of committed relationship, committed to the unavoidable entanglements of love and friendship and community engagement. There's nothing simple about any of that. So we latch on to these teachings, the conceptual teachings of non-attachment. Okay, I think I have a plan. I'll be in relationship, but I'll pretend, I'll imagine that it doesn't matter, that I don't care. And it does on the surface, you know, when we're kind of fixed on that idea that we should be non-attached, we shouldn't really care, it does create on the surface a feeling of freedom. But it depends on the mind being fixed on the idea, not the reality, that it doesn't matter. And real committed relationship, what we discover is relationships do matter. <laughs> they, they don't not matter, they do matter. And what is non-attachment? What is non-fear? and non-dependence look like, feel like, when things do matter. So she writes again, The shadow side of Buddhist practice is what I call premature non-attachment, which is actually avoidance masquerading as spiritual attainment. In marriage, you're challenged to confront your shadow, shadow side, your anger, impatience, and resentment. Whereas in the monastery you can hide behind your practice, and never reveal these aspects of yourself. Marriage demands more honesty. And the thing about like a marriage, or a committed friendship, or raising a child, or really being in the complexity with a group of people around some kind of community issue that you care about, and you're showing up for, we can't it doesn't make sense to sort of use our samadhi, our concentration, or sort of turning inward, because part of life isn't about turning inward. It's about listening and looking at the complexity and working together to find a solution that's better than other solutions, none of the solutions being perfect. And, and, uh, knowing that not everyone's going to be okay with the solution or with the choices that are being made, whether it's you know done by the person on the top or it's done in a consensual way, it's always messy, regardless of the particular system. And that's just how it is. And so this uh, tendency to use spiritual practice to turn inward and to go to stillness, or to go to some spiritual concept, like it doesn't matter, or God will take care of it, is sort of a way to avoid the complexity of human responsibility. We're here together on this so-called relative, you know, relative level. We have responsibilities, we have relationships. What are we going to do about that? 
So it's really good that we find ways to call ourselves out. And this is what the person, somebody in the class wrote um, this question. And, and just as a reminder, feel free in the weeks ahead to send to me any questions that you have that you feel might be good to address in the course of our um, ongoing classes on this topic. So the person wrote, I do appreciate this concept of spiritual bypassing. The problem I found with it, however, is that it seems to pour gasoline on the fires of doubt. It's incredibly easy to disparage and discredit much of the practice as just so much spiritual bypassing and not something genuine. How can one tell the difference? Doubt is a nasty hindrance, but so is delusion. Yeah, and that's exactly right. It, uh, when we know that we're susceptible to spiritual bypass or premature non-attachment, it's like I mentioned, I don't know if uh, everyone was listening to last week's class, but I mentioned this um, wonderful, I find it a really useful teaching, just in understanding our own heart and mind as ice, water, and vapor. So, you know, depending on our understanding and insight in any given moment, it isn't like we're always going to be at one end or the other. But sometimes our mind is in a very fixed place, fear-based, greed-based, but its characteristic is being like ice. It's fixed, it's held, it's tight. And sometimes with more understanding, more perspective, we might feel more fluid. Okay, I see what's going on. Yeah, I've got my own needs, but you know what? I think they have needs too. So maybe there's a way for me to have an honest relationship with my own needs and begin to recognize that other people have needs. That's a more watery, more fluid place. And maybe there's an even more open and liberated place of vapor where that recognition of my needs and your needs isn't an ego navigating those two perspectives, but it's done effortlessly, naturally, without real preferences. But it isn't ignoring our own needs, it's just unfixed. Location isn't a fixed thing. And so maybe that's a more liberated mind, that vapor, water as vapor, water as water, water as ice. And so part of understanding, you know, am I fooling myself, is the only way to avoid the spiritual, like the concern of spiritual bypassing, triggering doubt, and kind of freezing us up like, Oh, I mean, I've had this happen to me. I remember a very particular retreat. This is probably in the late 90s. Um, and I'd been practicing at that point for, you know, a solid 16 years. And uh, really intent and regular in my practice. And I was on a retreat, I think it was at IMS. Kind of remember being in that room. And I just had this sort of like, okay, I've been practicing for 16 years. I've been very devout. And I can't say with any certainty that, you know, I've gained anything. Or I just felt like a rank beginner. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I just remember lying in my bed, in, one, in my bedroom, on that retreat. 
And it was kind of almost like a spiritual panic attack. Because, you know, the more I thought about, like, how could I be so deluded thinking I was learning something, and now it really, from this place of doubt, appears that I haven't learned anything. And the only way out of that spiritual panic attack is, and, and you know, it's not always easy to have this wherewithal, but to have the wherewithal to check. Okay, I'll come into a relationship right now. I'll see, I'll check what might feel theoretical or feel conceptual, but I'll apply it directly to this moment of experience. And that's the thing about like, if you want to check, if you've been involved in some kind of shadow, spiritual bypassing, premature non-attachment in a relationship, well, simply come into the relationship with that human being, you know, and then see if there's some fear, see if there's something that's actually in the way of meeting that human being, being in relationship with that human being, some idea that you meet instead of meeting the wild human being that you're married to or that's your good friend, you meet some fixed idea that the mind is using to keep itself from connecting. Can we relax? And one of the ways we know we're relaxed with another human being or a group of human beings or a four-legged being is we notice the mind isn't dependent on any idea in a given moment, an idea of what we're doing here or who I am or who that person is. So it's there's a kind of simplicity where it can be noticed that the moment is undefined. It's open. It doesn't have a story, a fixed story, that the mind is using to feel safe in that moment. This is often when people discover, like in terms of intimate relationships, and I don't mean that in a sexual way, like it could be with a parent or a friend, or, but you know, you might be in a long car ride or you might be taking a walk and you realize that there have been moments of silence where either one of you hadn't needed to fill the space of just being together in relationship or doing a task together. But that recognition of real safety and comfort without either one of you defining or shaping with words, with concepts, some you know mutual story that you're holding to or bouncing off each other's stories. But there's just together an apparent shared space that's free of fear and free of any neurotic mind needing to do anything in defense of that, just that simple sense of shared space. And that's a real sign, like I trust this person enough not to have to construct and hold to something, even something relatively wholesome, like this is a person I like, and then holding to that idea. So there isn't even the idea that I either like or don't like this person. We don't need to form or structure the moment. No, this is a kind of a subtle and ephemeral, but we can train the mind to learn it.
And I think this is how we go beyond doubt, like, am I fooling myself? I'm feeling some space in my relationships. I'm feeling some freedom in my relationship. But is it this shadow of like pretend premature non-attachment? And that's, I think I read uh, this wonderful quote from Thich Nhat Hanh early in the course for those who weren't listening then, but it was something like, uh, oh, what is it? If you go into um, something about going into dialogue, but there's something about going, having dialogue, going into a relationship that really reveals what needs to be seen. Yeah, so I can't remember that exact quote, but Jack Hornfeld had something very similar, <laughs> more funny too, where he said, you know, you think your practice is going well? Go home and visit your mother, or go home and visit your father. Because these more established relationships where there's so much habit energy, so much fixed patterns of how I show up in that relationship, it's just so, we just learn so much. Oh yeah, this is what, I'm not yet ready to feel and to see. I appreciate another person sending some questions and this will lead into uh, um, the chapter. I mentioned a, a really good book. I sent you a article by John Wellwood, I think the first week, and then I mentioned last week his book, Perfect Love, Imperfect Relationships, Healing the Wound of the Heart. So this person uh, mentions three different questions, but I think it really has to do with um, just the inevitable part of our practice, which is when we practice, we become more sensitive. And then, lo and behold, the more sensitive we become, the more we start noticing our own conditioned personality. And of course, the place we mostly notice that is when we're in relationship with others. You know, the obvious thing is when you haven't been in a relationship for a while, and then you're in a relationship, and you see that, you know, that conditioning you have in relationship with like a romantic partner that maybe you hadn't seen in a while. And it can be shocking that um, seeing it in living color and humiliating Oh my goodness. But it's really good to see this, um, this more, you know, messy level of how this heart, this mind's conditioned. And our wisdom practice, our awareness practice is really meant to be a mirror. So we can see that in, on the one hand, this is true, meaning the mind is conditioned in this way. And on the other hand, and it's not personal. It's both true and it's not personal. So let me read a few questions that this person had. Uh, something I just realized recently was that one of my needs that hasn't been clearly seen is the need to feel appreciated, loved, and adored. I just so appreciate that this person can acknowledge this. To me, this is like insight to realize that I have a need to be seen, appreciated, loved, and adored because that's called seeing things as they are. You know, we all have our own version. You may not use these exact words, but just the way we've been conditioned, I'd be surprised if there are too many people 
that don't have these deeply conditioned patterns to be appreciated, loved, and even adored. So then, <clears throat> once we are willing to have an honest, a more honest and more clear relationship to these conditioned patterns in our mind, then we start seeing it show, showing up in all of our different relationships. And it really begs the question like, am I in this relationship because of this need or because I'm not willing to feel what it feels like to want to be seen, appreciated, loved, and adored. And then if we're willing to feel what it feels like to want to be seen and loved and appreciated and adored, if we're willing to feel that, then we can be in any relationship we're going to be in. <clears throat> and we can be adored in that relationship or not. But even if we are adored, it's totally okay to be adored, as long as we don't need to be adored. The problem with adoration and being appreciated and being loved is if I haven't had an honest relationship with my need to be loved, then I'm going to imagine that that person who does appreciate me and loves me and adores me, I'm going to feel that I'm in need, I'm dependent on them. And then I'm going to be afraid of things changing. And so then I can't have an honest relationship with how the, how this relationship is unfolding because it might really work for a while. And then for whatever reasons, it may not work anymore, but I'm dependent on their appreciation and love and adoration. So I might start having a dishonest relationship with myself. Like I can't really be honest with myself that the relationship isn't really healthy because I think I need their appreciation and adoration. So this is the real powerful, um, liberating um, experience we have when we're able to notice that there is this need. Because then we can still have whatever relationships we're inclined to have, but we realize that I have this capacity to know what it feels like to want appreciation, to want adoration. And it's like peeling back the onion, you know. We get right to that existential feeling of being alone or being empty, but not in a Buddhist sense, being sort of like something's missing. Perfect love is missing. And, but you know what? There's something so empowering and liberating by relaxing with that deep, unpleasant feeling of that thing, that imagined thing that's missing. And then a, a, a different question. This person writes, when I notice, what I notice is that I have some identity around work and being productive. Now this is an especially interesting question given what a lot of us are going through with sort of a real shift in our engagement in the outside world, being quarantined in our homes. What essentially is coming up is that some of my purpose or inspiration is gone if I'm not feeling like I'm being of service. So beyond noticing that with reflective awareness, is there any particular way you'd recommend viewing that or working with it? 
And I like this question because it, it brings up this necessity of, of grieving. Because, you know, again, part of the path of practice is we're going to become more sensitive, more raw, more real. The stability of awareness as healing and even at times beautiful and pleasant as samadhi is, the other side of samadhi is the heart, mind, sensing, seeing what it wasn't seen before. So we'll see this dependence on being productive, as this person suggesting. And then when all of a sudden we lose that job or there's a virus and we have to stay home or whatever might happen. And then we, you know, this happens sometimes with people when they retire and they realize that so much of their sense of worth and sense of being okay with themselves arose because they would go to work and they'd get a paycheck or they'd get recognition or just that simple thing, going to bed at night feeling like you accomplished something during the day. And now it's, you know, it's different for a lot of us and and there are these natural times in life where things go away. And then we have to grieve the loss. Like we're, again, we're happy to notice that the mind was dependent or identified with that sense of being that person and identified with that story of having accomplished something, being recognized in some way. But it's not true anymore because circumstances have changed. That person, in a sense, is dead. They're gone. And that hurts. This is real loss. So we're grieving the loss of that sense of worth. And I wonder what that's like to get closer to not knowing who we are. We know who we are when we had that job or when we were productive and we were getting recognized either by ourselves or we were recognizing our own productiveness or other people were appreciating or recognizing our productiveness. But now that's gone and there's that sense of something is missing. And so what a, a wise practitioner will do is, oh yeah, something's missing. This missing. This is the experience of loss. It hurts. This is the grief of losing. See, even though it was a construction of the mind, it's as real as anything is real, that sense of loss. And the question is to be real with that sense of loss. And it just might be that how we go forward naturally gets clear when we're willing to grieve what has ended, willing to get close to the feeling that's there, given that some part of our life, some activity, some job has ended. And it's just generally true. It's kind of why I like taking a nap in the middle of the day, especially in the busy part of the day. I just willing to die in a sense, to put everything down. It's really goes right to the heart of meditative practice where we put our attention with a meditation object, whether it's just generally what's predominant in the present moment, 
or a particular meditation object like the sensations of breathing in. But to do that with some continuity means the mind is dying to whatever else it was entangled with and picking up and chewing on and proliferating with. That's all dying because the mind is connecting and sustaining with the present moment. So all that other activity has to die. And then, you know, any beginning of any meditation period is a little bit of what I think this person is talking about with just the change of being at home and not able to be productive and engaged in so many of the ways that we would normally be engaged. We don't know who we are, but actually we can find out who we are. But the gateway to finding out who we are is to feel what it feels like to not be who we normally are. Because there's a feeling there. And it probably has the feeling tone of grief and sadness and the disorientation of not knowing who we are. But we can actually connect to who we are. We just have to be unconfused by the initial unpleasantness of that, the grieving of who we thought we were, because that's gone. It was connected with this particular activity that activity was never dependable. It lasted because the conditions were there for us to do all those things. And now the circumstances, of course, are different. And then the last question this person asks, I realize I was putting other people's needs above my own. And then a little later, I've been working on communicating that I have needs and that it's been go and it's been going kind of well. But I also wonder when it's time to just find someone with more similar needs. What are some of the ways to practice or review a situation where you and your partner have opposite or somewhat conflicting needs? And of course, I don't have the answer and it's gonna be, you know, it may not be so much a specific, like we or anybody can know what to do in a particular relationship. It may be more, what uh, what am I able to do? And what we can do is take responsibility for our own happiness. And just, I think it's a useful presumption that the way we support our partners and close friends is in relationship with them without any fixed idea about how it should be or how it should unfold. But while in relationship, I'm going to do my best to model being a happy human being, following my own path towards the deepest happiness that's available. And I'm going to practice being fearless and I'm going to practice being clear and I'm going to keep my mind open, like with humility, that I don't know whether that activity of me following the path of peace, the path of happiness, this path of awakening, I'm going to keep open. I don't know if it will mean that we're going to stay together or we're not going to stay together. I don't really know. But I know that staying together and not following my path of awakening that doesn't seem to make sense. And we have to give permission to the other person that them 
doing their best, it won't be perfect, to follow their own path of awakening, of uncovering the deepest happiness that's available for a human being. We don't know for them whether that's going to lead to being together or not being together. So that's kind of a scary thing for two spiritual seekers to own up to together. We know we're together now. We know that it makes a lot of sense or some sense now, that we find value in it now. Can we really appreciate how supporting it is now? But to know in our hearts that I don't know how things are going to unfold. It doesn't mean that, that we're kind of like, I better hedge my bets and have a plan in case it's not going to work out. It just means when in doubt, which is all the time, we take responsibility for taking the next step in this moment. How can I take care of this life right now? And by taking care of this life, it's in the context of being in relationship with this other person, being in relationship with all the people we're in relationship with. These are all kind of the given, being awake, being sensitive, like to taking care of myself. It means connecting with all that's already in motion. Because being oblivious to commitments, well, that's, you know, that's going to be the cause for a lot of suffering. So given the commitments that are already in motion, given the relationships that are already happening in my life, how do I take the next step towards freedom? How do I realize a deeper freedom from fear, a deeper freedom from greed, a deeper freedom from disconnection? And I, I love this, and I've mentioned it many times, but it really bears repeating this statement from Susan Piver about relationships, where she said, of course relationships can work as long as we don't expect them to make me happy. So the context of staying in a relationship and the context of leaving a relationship, an important relationship, we don't want to imagine leaving is going to make us happy nor do we want to imagine staying is going to make us happy. The staying and leaving is kind of part of these wild causes and conditions. Our practice is, while we're staying, to practice realizing a deeper happiness, or why we're leaving the relationship to practice uncovering a deeper happiness and freedom. Not so much thinking if I figure out if I should stay or leave, then I'll find that deeper happiness. But I notice that I'm staying, so I'm going to uncover, I'm going to be curious about what deeper happiness and freedom looks like, given that I'm staying. Well, I'm noticing that I'm getting myself out of this relationship. Okay, what is that deeper happiness and freedom, that deeper love, what does that look like as I find a skillful way to leave a relationship. And you know, just going back to the point that I made earlier about uh, this uh, relationships as a crucible, or another place, someone talks about it as an incubator. This is from that book I mentioned, Perfect Love and Perfect Relationships by John Wellwood, Chapter 3, Letting Grievance Go. 
How can we free ourselves from the mood of grievance, which only serves to perpetuate the wound of love by reinforcing fear and resentment of others? There is a powerful teaching from the Tantric tradition of India and Tibet that can help us here. The medicine can be found within the poison. And that's a really powerful teaching, and it's not exclusive to the Tantric traditions and the yogic mystical traditions and Buddhism, later schools of Buddhism. Because in early Buddhism, it's the same basic principle that uh, one of my teachers used to call it subtle is significant. So that, you know, it's when we're opening to the defilements, to the torments of the mind and the complexity and difficulties in relationships, you know, the reason we're even having this course of cultivating wholesome relationships is not so much like, oh, have a wholesome relationship and then we can get on to our spiritual practice. It's more about understanding that the committedness, like, yeah, I'm a human being, I'm a so social being, I'm going to be in relationship. How can I use these relationships, and in particular the complexity and the difficulty that ar naturally arises in relationship, how can I use this for awakening? Because even nuns and monks... Right, the sort of ideal conditions for awakening to be in a perfect monastic setting. It's complex. I, I know a number of monks and nuns. And, you know, and I, and sometimes I, I really revere the lifestyle and attracted. I've practiced temporarily for five months as a Buddhist monk. But it's messy and it's complex. And if you spend some time at a Buddhist monastery, or talk, have a deeper conversation, you'll you'll get that reported, or you read some of what the nuns and monks are writing. They learn a lot from their relationships, just like us lay folks learn a lot from our relationships. And the medicine can be found within the poison. So it's the difficulty in the relationship itself that has something to teach us. And I think what it has to teach us is that this pain is as real as anything and it's not self. So it's really getting to know like the beauty of relationships and the more commitment, the more attraction, the more dependence, the better the teacher. Because we're going to see something that we don't necessarily get a opportunity to see very often because relationships tend to expose those deeper layers of the mind, the heart's conditioning, like the deeper sense of need. And then we see, oh yeah, there very much is this need. There very much is this attraction, is this hopefulness. I feel it, I see it, it's as real as anything. It's like vibrating through my heart, my body, my mind. I can't put it down. I mean, I think Jack Hornfield in one of his books said, has anybody not done something really stupid in relationship, you know, and especially relationships involving attraction and romance, right? It's just like brings out this conditioning and we see it's as real as anything. And if we have enough curiosity and we stick with it, eventually with the tools we are developing in our Buddhist practice, 
eventually we'll see that all of what's getting exposed, mirrored back, it's real and it's not self. It's not personal. It's there. We're responsible not to harm ourselves or harm others. And it's not personal. It's not self. John Wellwood, he continues writing, If grievance is like poison, this teaching suggests that the cure lies in the grievance itself. So instead of looking outside ourselves for something, for something to blame, we need to be looking, we need to be willing to look within and to face what lies there in the heart of the grievance. What lies at the core of all grievance is deep pain and grief about the loss of connection. Or I would say the pain of ignorance or, you know, the uneasiness of fixed view. It's kind of in a more Buddhist context, we'd say it like that. He continues writing, Because we have never fully and consciously grieved this hurt, it becomes coagulated in our mind and body. What we fail to grieve turns into grievance. To extract the medicine that can heal the poison of grievance, we need to acknowledge and allow this grief instead of running away from it. This means bringing our grief about loss of connection out of the shadows into the daylight of openness and warmth. Wisdom and compassion, I'd say, there. And the interesting thing that we discover, you know, by turning to that place is we discover, like by willing to feel that deep grievance, to meet it. And this is like the essence of how we've been practicing doing the guided meditation at the beginning of these classes so far, where we're really using our own experience of the heart. We start with the body and the breath. But really, we're getting to that feeling, quality of feeling, energetic feeling, quality of the heart, right? Where that, when the mind-body settles a little, that's actually what sort of comes into the forefront of attention. Oh, the heart feels like this. Might feel numb, might feel like there's nothing there, might feel hard as a rock, might be hot, might be cold like ice, Jokobek calls the heart sometimes an icy couch right, that we learn to sit on in a dignified, loving, curious way. But we're going to meet our heart one way or another, and it's going to be what we feel, what we actually experience in those moments. And if we hang in there and can cultivate the awakening qualities of you know, the energizing qualities of interest and energy and joy and tranquility and stillness and equanimity, the tranquilizing qualities. We have this relationship with real integrity with our own heart. We find, as he says a little later, that in our bones we are loved or lovable because we're realizing it right there. The meeting of our heart, the meeting of our grievance, 
right? That we're proving that we're love or lovable because there it is. We're willing to open. And then we have a sense of how to meet everybody else. I mean, we can do this as a practice this week. I think two things before taking a few questions, but for next week, you know, one is to to get in touch with our own deep pain of grievance, not having been loved and adored and seen and not being able to contribute and all the ways we feel like there's something that hasn't been met or filled in some ways. So we get to know that grievance as a profound wound. And we learn, I don't have to turn away. And in moments, I can actually be with you, and maybe even in many moments, just depending on how our practice is unfolding now. And then here's the homework, to begin to see everybody else you come into touch with, that they've got a big gaping wound too. Their deepest needs, their deepest fears haven't been taken care of. They're the walking wounded, I'm the walking wounded, our president is the walking wounded, the Dalai Lama is the walking wounded, saints are walking wounded, so-called ignorant people, untrained people, unwise people, they're the walking wounded, we're all the walking wounded. And some of us who are walking around wounded know to some degree that we're wounded. Others in any given moment may not have a clue that they're wounded. And so the practice isn't about not being the walking wounded, but just coming into a more honest relationship of our social wounds, our emotional wounds, inevitable, undeniable. And just see how that changes everything to be able to see ourselves and others in that way. Let wisdom keep mirroring that back so that nobody is apart from this woundedness. And just see how that begins to change how we relate to ourselves and relate to others. And then the other thing to kind of set up the um, small groups that we'll have at the end of next week's class is to read the two articles that I sent out to everybody on the mailing list around personality types. And we'll kind of dig into this next week a little bit more. And remember these sort of models or maps, they're just meant to illuminate the conditioned part of our minds so that we are seeing what we would normally not see because it has a lot to do with how we meet each other if we tend to be aversive or we tend to be greedy or we tend to be deluded, not, not sort of connected or confused. And it's impersonal. And it's not meant, these personality types in this particular teaching in the Buddhist tradition isn't met, meant to set up judgment and self-hatred. It's just meant to illuminate this impersonal but real conditioned heart and mind. So if there are any questions before we end, there's time to jot something down in the live chat and maybe there's already something there. And uh, when Fricky is here with me, and uh, she'll kind of look to see what's there. And I'll just mention while Wynn is looking that um, um, I sent out in the email um, 
the second email today, a link to Slack. This is a, a web-based chat group that you can put on your phone or you can bookmark it in your internet browser. And this is a place during the week where people in the Buddhist studies class can continue to discuss these. And so just for those of you who want um, kind of additional time to connect with the community, feel free to share what you're learning about this keeping woundedness, social woundedness in mind. It's not that we're imagining we can read somebody's heart, but we're pretty sure in their own particular way that they're hurting, that every social need, social desire hasn't been perfectly met. And then in that way, they're hurting. And I'm going to learn to sense that instead of pretending, imagining that they're not hurting in the same way as I relate and sense myself. So you might want to share that in Slack. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to uh, info at org. Gabe is monitoring that email account and he'll be able to respond. Or you could just type something, if you're capable of doing that, just type something in Slack. And some of you who are more technically proficient can help out the community members who uh, don't have a clue and want some input on how to use that uh, to keep the conversation going. Any questions, Wynn? Uh, no, but maybe I'll, I'll just ask, um, I, I like what you know, you're saying about sort of recognizing, naming these un, unmet needs, you know, these wounds that we carry. <laughs> And can you just talk about like wise mindfulness or wise attention, like how we hold and see and work with mindfulness around it? Yeah, so when just we can end with this question, this comment about these unmet needs, social needs, or what I was even talking about in more graphic ways, wounds here in the heart. And uh, the key is the mind, because it, the energy of that, the feeling tone of that can feel overwhelming. The mind is going to want to feel safe by thinking about why I'm wounded in that way, why I'm so needy in that way, why I think that if only then I'll be happy. And so what we've learned as practitioners is subtle is significant, right? So what's the feeling tone under the story? What's the raw, energetic, unpleasant, often, feeling? And remember, numbness, not feeling anything, can be a feeling. That is the feeling. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's heavy, sometimes it's an ache. But can that be okay, that the heart feels like this? Is it actually safe to have a more honest, curious, and you, what we realize is that it's only love, and you can use the word wisdom, it's only wisdom and love that can meet this deep, deep, essential grievance, woundedness. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.